my family. Let's get back to our seats here. I want to pray as we open God's word today. Bring the passage before us. Bring our needs before God. So would you bow with me? Oh God in heaven. Um, Lord, we right now submit ourselves under the authority of you, God, and your word as you've communicated to us. Lord, when we read the Bible, you are speaking to us. And so when it's preached, God, we want to listen. Father, do give us ears to hear and eyes to see all that you would have for us. Lord God, we lift up our country uh, to watch the news as we listen to the radio. God, we just see there's so much brokenness politically, racially, safety-wise. God, there's just so much brokenness. God, I long to see the church truly rise above the mess and shine its light bright in darkness. So Lord, even now, God, as we open your word and as you bring up things to the surface that are important for us in America today, God, give us a vision for what it means to be the church in the midst of our society. God, you have given us the answers to life's questions, and I pray that we would see the privilege you've given us then to share those answers. So, Father, for each of us, give us ears to hear, as I've said, and eyes to see. And for those who don't know you, Lord, stir their hearts to see that you are better than anything, anything this world has to offer. So we bring ourselves before you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. It's been a great, great time of worship and singing and just celebrating God and This time of the service is part of worship as well because we're hearing from God and we want what we hear to then transcend into our lives and then express ourselves in our worship to God. Today we're going to talk about some hot issues in our society that come up in our passage today. You know, politically speaking, there's a lot going on in our nation. Depending on the news network you listen to, you're going to get a very different angle, aren't you? We've heard accusations of fake news. We've heard of things of telling the truth. And you know as well as I do, with certain words, if I speak them right now, people's going to be saying, this is where I stand, and this is where I stand. If, if I say the word Democrat, if I say the word Republican, if I say Donald Trump, if I say immigration, if, if I say all kinds of things, press secretary, CNN, Fox News, we get all kinds of things that come to our minds. And what's interesting to me is that God actually isn't silent as to the church's role in society and in government. And you know, in Jesus' own day, these were hot topics just as much as they are in our own day. And what he has done is it shows us how the church of Jesus, the followers of Jesus, are to respond in the face of politics. On the other hand, there's other questions that come up in our society Questions about the afterlife. Our our nation has some kind of fascination with zombies and vampires. I I don't get it, but I think a lot of us are still, in the back of our mind, we're like, what what happens after we die? 
You know, what, 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 how do we make sense of this? And so movies try to bring these things about and because these are questions people are asking. And lo and behold, those same questions were asked to Jesus. And so today I'm going to take these very apparently different topics and show you how they do come together. Because the afterlife matters in this life and how we live in this life matters in the afterlife. And so here we come to the book of Mark chapter 12 where Jesus is, is being challenged by religious leaders in his day. And we saw this take place last Sunday and the Sunday before. Where Jesus here comes into the temple, the place of worship, and the religious leaders are not down with Jesus. In fact, they're quite frustrated with him because of the way that he speaks, the things that he does. And they question him saying, by what authority, Jesus, do you do these things? How dare you step into the temple and confront us, the religious leaders? Don't you know that we're the chief priests? That we're the top dogs? And so Jesus is being challenged by his authority. And he's being questioned in different ways because they want to trap him. They want to paint Jesus into a corner to make him look silly. And so they bring up two very different questions to see how he'll respond to it. And if they could stump him or make him look silly, then they could under, uh, undercut his authority and tell people, see, this guy's a fake. I told you all along. And so today we're going to look at these two different topics and what Jesus does when he's asked about them. You've had these questions asked to you before. You sat in the lunchroom or in the break room and someone says, hey, you're a Christian. What does your God have to say about government? And you think, is it time to go yet? (laughs) If I run right away, will it look weird? And so Jesus was asked this question. In the book of Mark, chapter 12, would you turn there with me? It's towards the end of your Bible, the book of Mark the second book of what we call the New Testament, which talks about the life of Jesus and the growth of the church. Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17 is what I'm going to read here for you guys to open up. This is what God's word tells us. Verse 13, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him. Say trap him. They try to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, teacher, We know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. They're buttering him up, aren't they? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought him one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Well, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Pause there. This is God's word for us. What they want to do here is trap Jesus. We see here in verse 13, it says that they were sent to Jesus. Well, who sent this group of people with these questions? Well, in the preceding passage, we saw that there were chief priests, 
They were elders and scribes. They were leaders, religious leaders. And they said, hey, we got to trap Jesus. He got around our first question. Now we have a new one. Can you go ask it to him? So they had two groups of people, one called the Pharisees and one called the Herodians. Now, this is an unlikely couple. You see those videos where a tiger and a dog are playing together? You're like, what's going on? This is kind of what's happening here. They're very two unlikely groups. The Pharisees were religiously conservative down to the T. So conservative, so overbearing, they began to stress people out by the laws that they placed and developed. They had a problem with government because they said, God's our only king. And so they resented the Romans and the Roman occupation in the land of Israel. The Herodians, on the other hand, well, their name is the Herodians, which means that they were sympathetic to Herod, the king in the land. They were Jewish people who believed in the Jewish faith, but as the Pharisees probably saw them, they were a bit of sellouts. They, they, were, they were good with the government. And so now we have these two groups of people, one who hates the government, one who loves the government, coming together because they can agree on one thing, and that's the fact that they hate Jesus. It's interesting how Jesus has a way of bringing enemies together with a like-minded hatred of him. Even at his crucifixion, Herod and Pilate, who did not like each other, became friends because they agreed on crucifying Jesus. You know, as a side note here, there are times in society where those who are Christians, when you're a follower of Jesus, there'll be times where it seems like everybody is against you. Our, our, our society might disagree on so many different things, but they can agree on the one thing is that Christians should not share what's on their mind. Don't be surprised. It happened to our Lord. After all, the Christ in Christian is the one that we follow. And so here with Jesus, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they get him in a political trap, and here's the question. They say, Jesus... Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And us who are American, we realize taxes is just, you can't get around it. You got to do it. And especially this time of the year, it's on the forefront of your minds, isn't it? And so they're asking him, though, should we do this? Is this a good thing? And Jesus recognizes this to be a trap. It's a trap with malicious intent. And here's the reason. The Pharisees thought if Jesus says, yes, it's okay to pay taxes, then they're going to be like, well, Jesus, God's our great authority. Are you a sellout as well? But if Jesus says, no, you shouldn't pay taxes, then the Herodians on the other side are like, well, that sounds pretty treasonous to me. Are you trying to stir up a rebellion here? And so now Jesus is there with these two groups of people looking at him, waiting for an answer, saying, Jesus, what's your opinion on taxes? Do we give them to Caesar or not? And what I love what Jesus does, he sees right through their hypocrisy. He said, you're trying to butter me up. Jesus, you're so great. You don't care about people's opinion. What do you think about this? It's like, I know what you're trying to do. I'm not falling for your flattery. And he says, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Now, it says before that he saw, that their, hip, saw their hypocrisy. He, here's where their hypocrisy is. A, hip, a hypocrite says one thing and does another. And so now they're trying to make him look bad depending on his answer about taxes. So Jesus says, all right, go bring me a denarius. That was the required poll tax, a tax that was levied on every adult male. And so they bring him a denarius. And isn't it interesting that Jesus didn't have one in his pocket? But they had one in theirs. And on that denarius was a picture of Caesar. 
And what's even more interesting is archaeologists have found that the denarius has a phrase on it. It says, Divi Augphilius Augustus, which is to say, son of the divine Augustus. You see, the denarius coin had a picture of season calling him divine. And on the other side, it had the phrase Pontifex Maximus, which means high priest. And of course, to a person who worships, worships the God of the Bible, that is like blasphemous. There's only one God. There's only one high priest. And so Jesus has them bring this coin that they've got in their pockets. And he says, whose likeness is on that coin? Who, whose picture is there? And they said, well, well, Caesar's picture is on there. And in masterful way, Jesus says, well, then give to Caesar what belongs to him and give to God what belongs to God. Here's the twist. The coin has the likeness of Caesar, but who has the likeness of God? It's humanity. And so Jesus is saying, you can give what belongs to Caesar, but know that you belong to God. And they look at him thinking, wow. By answering it this way, he affirms the fact that they're supposed to respect Caesar as the authority in their, in their government, but ultimately gives God supreme authority over everything. And at the same time, he says, by the way, you're the ones with Caesar's likeness in your pocket. Here, Jesus is unswayed by their trap. Really, their question is, is what role does God in government have? And what that does is open up that bigger question, like, yeah, what, what does that look like? Do, do we honor government or do we rebel against it? And so what Jesus does, he, he, uh, he threads the needle here, showing us, yes, we are to see God is supreme over everything, but yes, we are under government. But how does that work? And that's a question a lot of people are asking in our day and age, especially those who are followers of Jesus. What does that look like to be a Christian in a government? At times, maybe you disagree with or you do agree with. Well, the Bible's not silent on this. In the book of Romans chapter 13, Paul writes to the church in Rome, telling them how they should respond to government. And before we start thinking like, oh, but but Paul, you don't know what we're living under. You, You don't know the kind of challenges we're facing in our society. Paul was writing this under the authority of Emperor Nero, who killed Christians for their faith. He's one who's in the midst of the fire when he tells the people in Rome this in Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Even Nero? He says, why? For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. If we jump down there in Romans 13, he says, For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, untending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. What Paul is telling us here is this first point I want you to take away, that God establishes government. This is why Jesus isn't so subversive saying, forget Caesar. 
Let's go storm the gates here. Because Jesus recognizes God establishes government. And what Paul says here, which is fascinating, is that it's instituted by God and that the governing authorities are put in place by God. That, that's, that's something to hear. And you might think, well, even, even the wicked ones? Well, Paul's writing where Nero is the emperor. What Paul is saying is that clearly no, not every ruler is doing the things that honor God. But what he's saying is God has established government, and we must see it as such. The second point I want you to hear is that God is sovereign over the rulers who he puts in place. This is interesting because God chooses to put in place different rulers in different times. So yes, we can say that Donald Trump was put in office by God. And what that means is that God is a God who establishes government, and he will use human figures in government, and there are times, yes, where human figures don't do the things that God wants, but God is still in control. This is a reason why we need more Christians who are in politics. Yes, I said that. Maybe you have a political edge and you, you are fascinated with those things. Consider running for office, consider being an alderman, a governor, a mayor president. See, God has established government. David was a king. Solomon was a king over a nation. Jesus is a king over his people. Why not strive to be an influencer in our society? God establishes government, number one. God is sovereign over rulers and authorities, number two. And number three, God even uses wicked rulers to accomplish his purpose. This is a harder one to swallow at times. But if we read the Old Testament in the scriptures, we see that there's a time where God's people, the nation of Israel, those who he called by name, pulled them out of Egypt, gave them a land, gave them a king. And when they rebelled against God, God just didn't stay passively by, but he says, I've got to discipline you, my people. You've turned away from me, and what God says, what I'm going to do is bring another nation here to judge you. And the book of Obadiah is all about this. Where Obadiah is like, yes, we need to be judged, we need to be disciplined. And God's like, I'm bringing a wicked nation, the Assyrians. And then I'm bringing the Babylonians. And Obadiah is like, what? God, they're worse than we are. And God says, their time will come. But right now, I'm going to use them as instruments in my hand. And so when we say that God establishes government and is sovereign over rulers, we're not saying that God is in charge of wickedness. But we are saying that God uses even the wicked to accomplish his purposes. And so no doubt, Paul recognized that. Nero is there. He's a wicked emperor. But he says, be subject to your rulers. And that's my fourth point. God calls us to submit to government even when you don't agree. I'm going I'm to give another point to that in a moment. But I'm going to stay here first. Because we want to go to the other. We, a lot of us have this rebellious tinge. And we're like, we want to overthrow things right away. <laughs> but but what, Paul, what, what Paul tells us to do is to be subject, Romans 13.1, to the governing authorities. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, so it's not just Paul, it's Peter who's as well living during the time of Nero. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. 
That, that's the purpose of government, is to, to reward good and to punish wickedness. Of course, it doesn't always work that way. But then in verse 15, 1 Peter 2, Peter says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. This is Peter speaking. And so Peter and Paul and Jesus are navigating a really thin line here, aren't they? But this is something we need to hear as the church, is that God wants the bride of Christ, the church, the people of God, to not just go with the flow of what other people are doing, but God has called us to submit to our government. God has called you to submit to your government. That's that's quite the charge, but he does that because God establishes government. But, But here's the other side to that, which is my fifth and final point of this section Always remember, obey God over man. Obey God over man. There was a time when Peter and John and the other disciples were out preaching the good news and they got arrested because they didn't want people telling people about Jesus. And when they arrested them, they pulled them aside and said to them, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have, have filled Jerusalem with your teachings and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. To which Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than man. And so this is how it fits together, church family. God establishes government. He puts rulers in place. He tells us to submit to our rulers. And he says, keep me as the head of everything. And when your government wants you to sin against God, then you rebel against your government. But in every other case, we submit even when we don't agree necessarily. To disagree is different than calling you to sin. And so what Jesus is doing is holding these things together and saying God is the supreme leader and government is placed under him and as children of God, we're called to live under that system. And how that works out in details at different times, man, it can be very complicated and I recognize that. But don't just go with people would go with on Facebook, on social media, just stirring dissent and trouble just to, just to stir the pot for the pot's sake. No, the church is called to be the church that shines light in darkness. And here they try to stir the pot with Jesus. They ask him about taxes. He says, I'm not playing that game. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but you give to God what belongs to God. And you, church, have the likeness of God on you. Which means give him your life. So on the one hand here, Jesus is there, and they're marveling at him like, man, he totally got around that question. He dodged it, but answered it. How did he do that? He's smooth like that. He's he's, he's amazing. Well, then they said, you know what? Let's take two on this one. So another group of people, again, unlikely, come to Jesus in verse 18. I'm going to read 18 through 27 for you. And the Sadducees then came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question. This is about the afterlife. They said, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. 
The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died, and left no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. Verse 23. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. This is like how many angels could dance on the tip of a needle, right? It's like, who comes up with this stuff? And so they hear, they're telling Jesus, and really what they're trying to do is they're trying to undermine Jesus' belief in the resurrection from the dead. And they're trying to make him look silly, saying, hey, this woman was married seven times. When she raises from the dead, who's her husband going to be? To which Jesus replies in verse 24, is this not the reason you are wrong? I love it. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, that's the burning bush, Exodus 3, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. (laughs) See, there are questions about the afterlife. And they they, they put together this imaginary story. And they're thinking Jesus is going to be like, what, is he going to be married to seven women? Is is, is this woman going to be married to seven men? That's polygamy. But Jesus gets around and says, look, guys, you don't know what you're talking about. He says, you are wrong. And the word wrong is planon in Greek, which doesn't mean much to us other than the fact that's where we get our word planet, which means it's wandered off. And he's telling these guys, you don't have a clue what you're talking about. You don't know the power of God, nor do you know the scriptures. And this is wild because these people are called Sadducees. As a kid, we say, because they're sad, you see. Um, this This is the problem with the Sadducees. They were religious leaders, But they didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead. And really, they didn't believe in a lot of different things because they based everything they believed on the first five books of the Bible, which is called the Torah or the Pentateuch, which were written by Moses. And they said, if something is not taught in those five books, we will not believe it as doctrine. And so the Sadducees held to this point. They did not believe in the resurrection because they said the first five books of the Bible don't talk about the resurrection. It talks about a place called Sheol, which they understood as a netherworld characterized by pale, joyless existence. There there is no resurrection. You die, you just kind of, you have this non-existent existence. You just kind of float around for eternity. There's no resurrection. And so here they are trying to challenge and stump Jesus with this imaginary scenario. When Jesus says you don't know the power of God or the word of God, somebody said it's like Jesus He says that Jesus had the audacity to accuse the Sadducees of not knowing the scriptures, which is like claiming that Wall Street knows nothing about finance. These guys pride in themselves in knowing the scriptures like the back of their hand. Jesus is like, you're wrong. You're drifting out like a planet. You're way off course. But he answers two questions because they wanted to get to one by going around the other. They want to know about the afterlife, and they get there by this question about marriage. 
And so I want to answer the question that Jesus says about marriage before talking about the afterlife. All right, you following me here? And so this is what Jesus says. He says, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And yes, you did hear that correctly. Jesus here teaches that there is no marriage between people in heaven. And for some, that's horrible news, and for some, that's great news. That's how they feel. But really, if you're a child of God, you got to hear this and understand what's going on. Because this, this is actually really great news. You know, on the one hand, Jesus says they will not be given in marriage, but he doesn't say that there's no such thing as marriage in heaven. Because there is such thing as marriage in heaven. And it's marriage between Jesus and his wife. And you're like, whoa, he's got a wife? No, it's not Mary Magdalene, as the Da Vinci Code said way back when. His wife is called the church. And Jesus came to this earth to get his bride. And although his bride doesn't deserve to be with him because his bride's imperfect and he is perfect, he laid down his life to save her. And he went on the cross so that her imperfections could be put on him. And he rose from the dead so that she too can be raised from the dead one day. And the book of Revelation says that that day and that last day and that resurrection, that there will be a marriage reception between Jesus and his church at the marriage supper of the Lamb, and then they will enjoy an eternal honeymoon together in eternity. This is what Jesus is saying. So he's like, you guys don't know the scriptures. You don't know what you're talking about. But what does that mean for those couples who are married here in this life? Like, so like all of a sudden I'm just not married? Well, you'll be then grafted into another marriage. And this is why it's important. You hear me say this whenever I talk about marriage. Is that there's no picture-perfect marriage, but every marriage is what? Meant to point to the picture that is perfect. And the picture-perfect marriage is Jesus' love for his church. And every marriage on earth serves its purpose when and only when it points people to the heavenly picture. And so when we die and are raised to life, there's no longer need for pointing because we will be enjoying that marriage. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 5, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He says, this mystery is profound. And like, yeah, marriage is profound. He's like, I'm not talking about marriage. He says, I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. That's the profound mystery. That's the mystery that marriage on earth points to. Now, what does this mean, though, when it comes to romance and love and pleasure in heaven? I know for some, they might think, man, I want to get married on earth then because I don't want to be unmarried in heaven. And here's something that's so important for all, all of us, whether we're single or married, to understand today, is that the joys and delights of heaven far exceed any joy in life on this earth. While marriage in this life can be very enjoyable, it is fraught with two imperfect people learning to live life together. But marriage in heaven between us and Jesus is with a perfect lover. And I know for guys that sounds really weird sometimes. But you got to hear what, what God is saying here. There, there is a spiritual romance 
that we know nothing about. We don't understand God's love that caused him to send his son Jesus to die for us. We don't know that love. We catch glimpses of it. And in moments, we're brought to tears even thinking about God's love for us. But it is our understanding in a broken world, the broken minds of God's perfect love. But in heaven, we'll be in a perfect world with redeemed minds understanding God's perfect love. And there will be a depth of love and delight and pleasure that this life can never offer. So whether you're single or married in this life, there's something far greater than anything here in heaven. That's good news. And so Jesus is here like, man, you guys are mistaken. She's not going to have any of those guys as her husband. But if she's a child of God, she will have Jesus. She'll be part of God's family. So Jesus takes their imaginary story and turns it around. And he could have left it there, been like, you guys are, you guys are messed up. But he's like, but, but to the question you were trying to ask me about the resurrection, let me give you an answer. He goes straight to the book of Exodus, which happens to be in the first five books of the Bible, for his answer. The only books that these Sadducees saw as authoritative. And Jesus says, you know Exodus chapter 3, right? Where there's that burning bush and Moses comes and, and out of the bush there's a voice. It's God himself speaking, telling Moses, take off your sandals because the place you stand is holy ground. You know that? And I'm sure they're kind of like, yeah, we, we know what you're saying. What, what, what does the voice tell them? The voice says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, I used to be their God until they died. But I am their God because they're not dead. Yes, they died, but there is an afterlife. There is a resurrection, and I am still their God, God says, because he is the God of the living and not God of the dead. What Jesus is doing, he's turned around everything. He says, we, there, there's a God in the heavens who will raise people from the dead, and they will be with him for eternity. And to that the Sadducees were Sadducee. <laughs> they had nothing to say. To drive home that point a little bit more, church, we do have questions about the afterlife. What happens after we die? Well, after we die, we go to heaven for those who are children of God. But we don't stay in heaven for eternity. Because the Bible says that God's going to take this earth and give it an extreme makeover. And after Jesus comes back, he's going to take us from heaven to this new earth, and on this new earth we will be for eternity. And so between now and then, those who die go to heaven, awaiting the time when Jesus comes back and establishes his kingdom. I love how 1 Thessalonians says it. And those of you who maybe have loved ones who've passed away, who know Jesus, I want you to know this hope. Paul says, if we do not want you to be uninformed, my brothers and sisters about those who are asleep. Even that language, like, that's temporary. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. I'm going to pause there real quick. What Jesus, or what Paul is saying here is this. 
Those who have died who are Christians, who are children of God, there's coming a day when Jesus is coming back on this earth. And there will be some people who are alive following him and those are people who have died following him. And those who, are, who have died will be raised from the dead and those who are alive will then go up as well. And this is what Paul says, For the Lord himself will descend from the heavens with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And then he says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. What I love is what the Sadducees meant to harm Jesus, Jesus uses for our encouragement. Jesus, what's your view on politics? Jesus, what's your view on the afterlife? And what Jesus shows is, yes, this life matters and the afterlife. Church family, I want us to understand that the reason this life and how we function under government, the, the reason why we hope for eternity is all grounded on the very fact that Jesus has risen from the dead. He is alive and he has given us an identity through faith in him of forgiveness and adoption into God's family. And we can keep in mind as we live on this earth that God is supreme over all things, that he wants his children to live for him, in our societies, shining our light in darkness, but always remembering that there's coming a day when we, we will be with him forever. They couldn't stump Jesus. He was too smooth. They asked him about his authority. They asked him about taxes. They asked him about the resurrection. And Jesus, the divine wisdom embodied, gives, gives them an answer, which becomes our encouragement. Church family, as I mentioned last week, I want to reiterate. We have a responsibility to know what we believe. And the deeper you grow in your understanding of the faith and how it looks in society, how it looks day to day, the more God will encourage your faith and strengthen it. And I know as I talk about the resurrection from the dead and being part of God's family, I don't want to assume that everybody here is in that place. In fact, I know that's not the case. When a given Sunday, I don't know your heart. I can't see through your skin. But there is one who searches our hearts and knows it perfectly. What Jesus offers to you who have never put your faith in him, he offers you eternal life, a resurrection from the dead to life, not a resurrection to eternal death. And that's what Jesus teaches in John 5. That at the last day, when we breathe our last breath, there's only one of two locations for us. There is no purgatory. The Bible doesn't teach that. There's heaven and there's hell. And what Jesus told Martha in John 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. And so what God does is this. He sent Jesus to die for you, as I mentioned, to raise from the dead. If you believe in Jesus, if you surrender your life, if you raise that white flag we talked about, and you turn away from the sin in your life, all the things that separate you from God, and you say, God, I need your forgiveness. I need you to help me. I turn away from that life. I want to live for you. God says, well, come to me, my daughter, 
My son, you are now adopted in my family because of your faith in Jesus. And the Bible says you then are forgiven. So all the mess of your past, all the junk of your present is nailed to the cross of Jesus. And he who raised from the dead then will raise you in the last day to eternal life. See, what was meant to stump Jesus could be the turning point in your life today. Man, if that's where you're at today, we'd love for you to raise that white flag and say, Jesus, I need you. Forgive me. In this few moments as we close in our final song, we're going to have a prayer team come up. Uh, They'll be on my left and right, some in the back. I want you to know this. The prayer team would find no greater joy than to pray with you on anything that's on your heart. And secondly, to show you how to put your faith in Jesus, to pray with you right there. And you might just come to them and say, man, what Pastor Eric was saying is stuck to me. I don't know what to do now. I want, I want this Jesus. Come to them. Let them pray with you so that you can receive Jesus Christ as your king, your master, your savior. And then you can have the hope of eternity through him. That's our prayer for you today. Let's bow together. Almighty God, you, O oh God, are better than anything this world has to offer. There are enjoyments that await us that we know nothing about. And Lord, those who are your children, God, we long for that great, that great wedding, that wedding feast, that marriage, that union with you, God, that spiritual bliss, that eternal joy, And oh Lord, I pray that we would live today with our eyes on eternity and make a difference in our society. Father, for those who don't know you today, God, I pray that they would not let their hearts grow numb to you, God. Keep it soft. Let them have the eyes to see and the ears to hear, God. And Lord, I pray that they would have the courage then to step forward and say, God, I need you today. I don't want to wander through this life anymore. I don't want to worry about what happens when I breathe my last breath. I'm done playing games. God, I pray that they would humble themselves before you and come to Jesus, oh Lord. So give us, God, the courage, God, to step forward and make decisions and choices to follow you. And God, would you encourage us in our faith in that same time. Lord, thank you for the scriptures and thank you for the power of God. For indeed, it's salvation to all who believe. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.